Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village in which they were going. He acted as if he was going to go further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures and they rose that same hour and turned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ask that you would sanctify us even in this moment, that by your spirit, uh, you would cause growth in us. Lord, we we know, um, even as these scriptures declare to us that we will only have our eyes opened if you open them, Jesus, for us to see who you truly are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, teaching kids the Bible is always an interesting exercise. Uh, As you go about uh, asking various things and reading certain passages, questions then are asked of you uh, in which you never know where you're going to find yourself. You never know what kind of weeds you're going to be getting into. Um, you know, you're, you're, for example, uh, you're teaching on the story of Jonah, and the next thing you know, you're getting asked questions about the dimensions of large fish versus the dimensions of a whale. You're, you're being asked particular questions about why is it that, that Jonah would dislike these Ninevites so much? 
You're asked questions like, why is he so mad at God? What is this all about? And it leaves the question, what is the story all about? The Sunday school answer is, of course, what? Jesus. It's about Jesus. For my kids, for example, they've been trained that when in doubt, the answer is always Jesus. Uh, My kids have been trained, you know, when you're asked, who saved us? Jesus. Uh, Who was the most perfect person who ever walked the earth? Jesus. Who was it who walked on water? Jesus. Who was the snake in the garden? Not Jesus. (laughs) And right there, they have this right intuition for them that Jesus has something to do with the Bible passage we're in. No matter if it's the Old Testament narrative or if it's a New Testament epistle, it's about Jesus. For many of us, though, when we begin to grow older, when we begin to read our Bibles as we're getting older, we, we, we stick with what we are taught in school, which is whatever text you're reading, it can only mean what it's directly addressing right there in the text. Uh, so then when you read Jonah, for example, you take it in isolation of everything that's come before and everything that will come after. And in this way of thinking, if you think through this way, Jonah becomes a moral tale to obey God the first time he asks you. Isn't that what Jonah's about? God told you to do it. Do it the first time. Or be a kinder person. Don't be a jerk like Jonah. Or love people who are very different from you. The moral lesson is telling you, you you cannot be sad like Jonah is at the end of the story, but rather you're supposed to buck up, buttercup. That's the moral tale of Jonah. But friends, in today's passage, in today's passage, we will come to a rather different conclusion. That the Bible is primarily not about you becoming a better person, although that is there. But rather, the main point will be that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible is primarily about Jesus and his gospel. And friends, this is a major, major discipleship issue. Uh, If you only have this halfway down, or if you do not have this down at all, then you will be sorely missing out and you're hindered in your spiritual growth. I may be overstating this a bit this morning, but today's text and message may be the most important message I have declared here from this pulpit yet. Why? Because coming on the other side of Resurrection Sunday, we can ask, now what? Jesus is raised from the dead. Praise God. Repent and believe. But now what? Well, to answer this, we look this morning at a unique scene from Luke 24, where on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus gives us the answer to the now what. Here in Luke, it's Sunday afternoon. After the tomb was found empty, the the two disciples are walking the seven-mile journey to the town Emmaus. So they're leaving Jerusalem. Maybe there's some important people they're trying to connect with in Emmaus. Maybe there's a fish taco truck that they can't wait to get to. For whatever reason, they travel this long distance to get to Emmaus. And on the road, while they're headed there, they're discussing these events that were so important to them. And this man shows up. Now, they're prevented. 
They do not know that this is Jesus. And pretending to be ignorant, Jesus asked them, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's going on here? And they ask, are you the only one who does not know what has just happened in Jerusalem? Friends, this would have been texted out to everybody. This would have been on Facebook. It would have been on Twitter. It would have been on the six o'clock news. Everyone should have known that this man who seemed to be the promised rescuer, this man who seemed to be sent from God to be the Messiah, he was put to death. And so they say in verse 21 here, but we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, at this moment here, everything is making sense to us until we get this amazing twist that begins in verse 25. Sorry, puberty. Um, We get this amazing twist that goes on here at 25 to 27. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's the key verse, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, first we see, I want to highlight and don't want to gloss over that Jesus emphasizes the necessity of the cross. But then we see how this necessity was to be known, not just from a select Bible passage or two, but from the prophets, plural, and more surprisingly from Moses and from what we read all the scriptures. You mean Moses was not just about being a good leader and about giving moral laws? No, the history of Moses and the rescue out of Egypt was to be a pattern that was ultimately to be fulfilled in Christ. This was such great news to them, friends, that when they finally got to Emmaus, had this meal with Jesus, what did they do? They, they hightail it, and, and by now it's evening, it's dark, but they decide it is worth the seven-mile journey from Emmaus back to Jerusalem so they can go run into the other apostles and tell them the things that they had just heard. This is key. And so as they're entering in to tell the apostles, and they're about to say, let me just tell you this exciting news that we just found out regarding Jesus. Not only is he alive, but it was all about him. Enter verse 44 where Jesus is showing up and he says right here, let me just jump in and interrupt you. You know, the entire old Testament, it's about me. Verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus gives us these three 
major categories which encompass the entire Old Testament scriptures. We, we see the writings, the law, or, and the prophets, or in, in, to put it here in Jesus' words, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, the entire Old Testament has Christ as its central purpose. And further here, he shows that this Christ connection has everything to do with the gospel in verses 46 and 47. To which we say, well, perhaps a verse here, Thomas, perhaps a verse there. Surely, even as, as Elder Dave just read in, verse, in Isaiah 53, I mean, this is obvious. This is about Jesus. But I don't see the Old Testament entirely speaking of Jesus. I mean, in fact, much of the Old Testament, isn't it about how the Jews could live under God and have a proper life? Oh, listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees who thought the same thing. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. And he also says, if you really believe the words of Moses, then you would really believe in me for Moses wrote of me. Now to be sure, Jesus is not saying that every single verse in the Old Testament is speaking directly about him, but rather the thrust of the entire Old Testament is about him. And if one has eyes to see it, you can see Jesus being the fulfillment everywhere. First, I want to remind you of how much this is brought up in the New Testament so I'm going to go slow, and I, for those who are taking notes, I encourage you to go back and think through these things. This is important. For example, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring in what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter also says in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. Then we turn to Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. In other words, it's not just the prophets prophesied. The law itself had a prophesying function. The law had a prophesying function that was pointing forward to an end point, to a fulfillment that is in Jesus Christ. And then we see Paul in the very last pages of the book of Acts. What is Paul doing? He's doing the very same thing that Jesus is doing here in the last pages of Luke. He's again saying, you know what? It's all about Jesus. When Paul finally makes it to Rome, he gathers the people together And they had appointed a day for him. They came with him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them. Listen, he was trying to convince them something that Jesus is both there from the law of Moses and the prophets. 
Friends, what Paul was attempting to do only makes sense if the Bible really is all about Jesus. This is unpacked in hundreds of ways. Because once you really catch that it is all about Jesus, and not just from a a, a children's teaching perspective, but deeper, you don't have to stare at the page long to see that from genres, to themes, to figures and types, to plot lines, it's all about Christ. For example, you go with the genre. Let's take the genre of the law. And you could just read and read and read and wonder, who could possibly fulfill all these things in this law? Who is it who could satisfy it rather than be condemned by it? And you turn page and page and page and page and page until you get to Jesus. And he does all things well, even as we read in Mark a couple weeks ago. Oh, here's one who does all things well. And then we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where he says that he fulfills the law. We find in Jesus, not just one who obeys the law, but we find that he is the law giver who is truly able to interpret correctly the law and cuts as we see to the heart of the law. Oh, but friends, there's so much more. Jesus lives perfectly the law so that he in place of all the law breakers who are hidden in him, they would take on his righteousness. Friends, you know the law. The law brought death and death even to Christ. But praise be to, be to God that Jesus brings life to those who are perishing. What about the genre of the historical narrative? We, we could look at a narrative such as the kings. Um, and you look at the kings where you see Saul and David and Solomon, each one leaving us looking for a good, righteous king who will truly deliver his people. Only then when you turn to Christ do we have a king who is nailed to the cross and above his head it says, here's your king, the king who is eternal, who is righteous, who is filled with justice, who in perfect rule we find Jesus, a king who loves the people in his kingdom so much that he is willing to die for his people to save them. And then we can turn to the genre of wisdom literature It all points forward to Christ, friends. Uh, Whether you're in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, it it doesn't matter. The the wisdom there we find in Christ is the true wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the cross is the wisdom of God. About the genre of poetry, like the Psalms. All the Psalms sing his praise. Uh, He is the tree that is planted by streams of living water that we see in Psalm 1. He is the king that is set on the hill in Zion, which we read in Psalm chapter 2. Friends, Jesus is the salvation that was provided that the psalmist is looking for in Psalm 3. And in in Psalm 4, the, the psalmist has a plea for help and a right sacrifice. Gee, where do we get help and a right sacrifice from? Finally, ultimately, in Christ. I could go on. There are 150 psalms. That would be fun to do. But every one of these sings the praises of Jesus. Themes. Themes also in the Bible. Themes of Sabbath and rest find their ultimate fulfillment in our Sabbath, true Sabbath rest, which is Jesus. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Themes of marriage that we read, for example, in Hosea, point us to the marriage that we have as a church with Christ. The church is the the bride and the groom is Christ. There are so many other themes to trace out. Themes of covenant, righteousness, sacrifice, justice, exile. All of them find their amen in Jesus. 
Not only genres and themes, but even individual persons serve as types and anti-types of Christ. Some, in such spectacular ways, you cannot miss this once you see this. Once you see this, you better not unsee it. You, you just go through and you see Abraham. Abraham's called to be a father to the nations, to be the father of nations. He mirrors our heavenly father that when he uh, takes his son Isaac, his only son, and goes to sacrifice him. And though he is stopped, why? Because there would only be one son who could fulfill the role and thereby purchase through faith all those who now belong to the kingdom of God. So that we who belong in Christ, you and I, we now belong to a new nation that was promised and begun in Abraham. The temple itself acts as a type. From the tabernacle to the temple of Christ, all places where the Spirit of God dwells, His abiding presence. So that when you read all of the ornate decorations in Second Chronicles, for example, you're supposed to be hearkened back by all the fruit and the pomegranates and all the glory that you see back to the Garden of Eden where you see all the fruits beginning. And what was going on in the Garden of Eden? You have the presence of God. So then in the temple, with the fruit and the ornate structures, you're thinking, ah, the presence of God. And then you carried forward all the way till you get to Jesus. And he says, destroy this temple. And you're supposed to say, here's the beautiful place where the spirit of God dwells all the way till you get to Paul saying, here's the temple now of God, the beautiful place where God's presence dwells amongst his people, friends. This changes everything. It means the church is not just a random country club. It means all the beauty and ornateness that you read in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, points forward to the beauty of Christ dwelling with his people and bringing about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, there's the story also of Joseph. Is Joseph about running from lust when Potiphar's wife chases you down? Is the story of Joseph about turning the other cheek when your relatives sell you off? Well, yes, this is there for sure. But, but more so when Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver and ends up being lost, thought to be dead by the father, only to be miraculously taken from the pit to the palace. Well, are we to forget that all this has happened to, for Joseph to save his people? So that by the time we read of Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver, thought to be dead by everyone, as we just have seen recently, even separated from his heavenly father, and then raised up to a high and glorious position so that he can do what? Save his people. Friends, the story of Joseph is Jesus's story. And if you forget that and don't see that, you miss out. And of course, you've seen me numerous times in the book of Mark. What have I been doing over and over with the book of Mark? Because it's just there on the page is connecting comparisons of Moses with Jesus. Jesus purposely draws upon themes from Moses' deliverance to show us, hey, what Moses did, I'm doing just even in a greater, grander scale. Uh, Moses gives the law. So does Jesus. Moses leads his people into the wilderness so they're fed bread where there is no bread. So does Jesus. Moses leads the people out of slavery so that they could be ultimately saved. So does Jesus. And in Moses, 
many of these things culminate. All these inroads come in together where you have themes and genres and types and even plot lines of deliverance. They all land together there. It's amazing. Friends, when you see this all over the place, you go back to the children's story of Jonah. And you say, here's Jonah delivering the Ninevites from destruction by preaching repentance. Yes, that same Jonah who was thrown overboard to save the men on the ship. The same Jonah whom Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, which is what? Three days and then raised. Friends, I'm just briefly this morning, I know this is broad overview. I'm just scratching the surface, just barely scratching the surface. But don't you see how deep this goes that when Jesus begins with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and interprets everything concerning himself, that I'm convinced here that Jesus is to be seen through these major figures, through these major themes and genres and plot lines of scripture. Jesus shows us that the primary purpose of the Old Testament is him. That in the Old Testament, there was promise. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment. The Old Testament was anticipation. The New Testament, we have Jesus, the goal. This is the pattern that you and I have to see over and over from the first half of our Bibles. And even in the New Testament as well. It's easy to miss Jesus, even as we're reading through the Gospels. But we need to see Jesus himself, the rescue, the sacrifice, the atonement, and grace. That from creation to the cradle, to the cross, to the consummation, it's all about Christ. Everything bends around Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we enter and utter our amen to God for his glory. Romans chapter 11 also says, from him and through him and to him, meaning Christ, are all things. Okay, so if this is the case, and it really is all about him from cover to cover, what does this change? What do we do with that? Do we simply say, yep, I agree, moving on. I'm going to suggest several ways that I think that this lands in our church. First, We respond by taking Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees seriously. When you search the script, when he says, hey, you're supposed to search the scriptures and you think that in them you have eternal life. Friends, we're supposed to search the scriptures because of what Jesus has told us. And first and foremost, the question is, what does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about the gospel? What does this passage reveal to me about Jesus? And yes, in the middle of this inquiry, we can ask, how does this call me to respond? But our inclination towards what the Bible is primary saying ought to be getting us to think first about God and the gospel, not how do I check the box so that I can prove to myself that I'm good. That cannot be our first inclination. Many, many have shown that there are simply, well, at the end of the day, two ways to read your Bible. It is essentially about me, or it's essentially about Jesus. It's either primarily about what I must do, or primarily about what Jesus has done. 
For example, if I turn to the story of David and Goliath, and I read that story saying, okay, Thomas, why don't you try and be a little bit more like David this week? I, I need to go fight all the giants in my life. I need to build up more faith and courage to conquer it all. That would be one way to read it. And yet, if I read the story first about God and Christ, then I realize, who's David supposed to be in this story? David's not supposed to be me. I'm more like the Israelites. I'm more like King Saul, who are cowering in the corner, while this giant over here is saying, I defy the ranks of Israel. Who's David? This seemingly insignificant person who shows up, and when he slays the giant, purchases the freedom of all the Israelites and followers of God who were cowering in the corner. Then David reminds me of a coming king who in perfect faith slays our greatest giant of sin and law and death. And only when you and I begin to see that Jesus did this to ensure our victory, only then will I have the courage and the faith to fight the normal Christian battles that I do face of suffering and failure and criticism and disappointment. Second, Friends, we have to stop using the Bible as a self-help book. This Bible is not tips for a better marriage and a wealthier bank account or even how to keep out of trouble. It may touch on those things, but primarily this book is a cataloging of God redeeming his people through Jesus. So this means the individual Bible verses cannot be used as lucky charms that we say, aha, the Lord gave me this verse for my individual circumstance. For example, I had a, a, uh, I, well, let me, I, I knew of a, of a church who was looking to make a move. They had a building, a location, they were growing, they, their building was outdated and they said, we must move. And they were looking to move across a, a river and build a, a much bigger f- facility. And the pastor then goes through and he's reading the story of Joshua, where Joshua takes his people and goes across the river and enters into the promised land. And he then declares to the congregation, well, the Lord has given me a verse. The verse is that we are to take our people and move across the river into the promised land. Friends, why not just rather say in good wisdom, God-given wisdom, it seems better for our congregation that we, we would have more opportunities to share the gospel across the river, that we, it would be closer to where many of you are living or other factors that may have been at play. But to use the Bible in this way without first saying, what did this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the gospel? Friends, Joshua taking the people over the river into the promised land, Joshua is a mini Jesus. The, the, the picture is for us, it, it, we, we're to see Joshua and say, oh, here's one who reminds me of a foreshadowing of Christ who leads his people over the river into the final promised land. Third, before we ask, what does this Bible passage have to do with me? We ask, what did the original recipients understand of this passage? We can ask, what does this have to do with the, the original recipients in their context. And then we ask, what does this have to do with God and the gospel and Christ? Before we get to the question of, okay, now, now how do I read this passage? This is important because if you draw a straight line from scripture to you, you do what the pastor just did. You read your lucky charm verse and you say, ah, this applies to me rather than saying, what does this have to do with the people who received it first? It would have meant something to them. 
And what does this have to do with God and the gospel of Jesus and what he says is true? All scripture points to him. It must have something to do with Christ and the gospel. Fourthly, we pray for Jesus to open our minds. This is exactly what we saw here in Luke 24, 45. Jesus, as he's explaining that the whole Bible is about him, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so this is something I continue to pray for us and for myself, that where scripture goes from being one dimension, one dimensional, it comes to life for me because the spirit is opening up the truth of what is really here. That the, the, the scripture is not just to be one dimensional. There is depth to it. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you uh, recall, I, this was more popular in the 90s. There was those books that had the, they were the 3D illusion books where they had a very interesting print on them and you would relax your eyes, get your eyes close to the page, and then you would kind of back out away from the page. And all of a sudden there would be what looked like a mess of color. And next thing you know, you're seeing a dinosaur or you're seeing uh, this interesting forest. And this is how the scripture is. And we have to pray that Jesus will open our eyes to see this, that it will go from being a mess of weird colors to having richness and depth where you go, aha, I see it now. I see it. Fifthly, we recognize that this work of Bible reading and studying can be difficult and laborsome, but it is always rewarding. I'm so encouraged when I see our men's and women's Bible studies wrestling through trying to get to these deeper things, but it is laborsome. And it is rewarding. So if you're 15 years old right now, and you're saying to yourself, um, you know, I'm not sure that I need to dive into this. It wasn't until I was almost twice that age that I began to search the scriptures with these things in mind. What an advantage you have if you're younger to spend time delving, figuring this out now. And some of you who are here and you're 75 and you're saying, I just don't know that I really have a whole whole lot more room to add on to my understanding. Friend, what if God gives you another 20 or 30 years? Why wouldn't you spend it, even just a couple years, getting this under your belt, going, there is more there. I'm, I'm only seeing one dimension. Can I drill down and see a deeper picture of Jesus and what is going on? And I know this leaves us saying, okay, Thomas, where do I even begin with this? Where do I start? This is all overwhelming. You've overwhelmed me with information. I kind of get where you're going. Where do I begin? I will send out an email later today with helpful resources. I make myself available. I would love for nothing more than to talk to you about this very thing. Lastly, let me highlight, friends, that this whole piece really is a discipleship issue. That that if we view the Bible as being sour and bitter medicine that we have to take, then we're always grudgingly going to find ourselves reading because we have to or showing up to church on Sunday to hear a sermon. Well, because, eh, you know, I I better do it. It's, It's the thing that I have to do. It's a necessary evil. But friends, what if we view the Bible as it is? It's sweet nectar because it's plot and point actually is good news for you this morning we want then to sit under the top word. We want to read this Bible and and it becomes the best part of the day for me because I'm reminded, ah, it's all of grace. And this grace will never leave me the same. It's going to continue to do a work in my life. Ah, this is the place I want to rest. What would it look, what would it look like if our whole church embraced this? Well, for those with little kiddos in your family, uh, your family devotional time, uh, 
It would be spent in God's word and God's word would not be used as a weapon to force your kids to behave better. It would be used to make a big deal of the world's biggest hero, Jesus Christ. For our kids' ministry and youth ministry, it would mean rather than teaching them that they have the identity of either being a good boy or girl or a bad boy or girl, that in Jesus Christ they have a new identity. They are now sons and daughters bought with a price. And it would mean that we teach them to love Jesus, even with their strengths and failures at the same time. For the singles in our church, it would mean that they see the story of redemption here, that they see that marriage is not the completion of them. Only by being connected to this one to whom all scripture points, that's the only thing that will truly complete you. They will recognize that they have tremendous value even as they live just as Jesus lived, single. It means in our men's and women's Bible studies, they're not places where we prove that we have lived better lives than than people out there. It's It's a place where we say again and again how much we need Christ, how much we need grace. And, and, and we find here it means even if we see that innocent Jesus had to have the nails and spear driven through him because of my sin, no matter how much I might sugarcoat it, my sin must be far more uglier than I ever first imagined. It would also mean for those who are older parents here amongst us, you no longer have an identity based on how great of a parent you are. Or how great or awful your children are doing because of your, your identity is not based in your performance as a parent or how well your children turn out. Your identity is based in Christ's performance. Christ and his work are at the center of this story. Not you, not your sin, not your shame, not your imperfections. Because from cover to cover, this is God's story. It would mean that individually and collectively, we are so much more patient, so much more grace-filled, giving, satisfied, joyful, sacrificial. And friends, when my wife asked me, why, why are you covering this passage here this morning? What, what's the deal? I said, this is the perfect post-resurrection Sunday message because Jesus has just resurrected. The disciples are figuring this all out. It's very clear and obvious that they need to repent and believe the gospel. But right there, we get what is on Jesus' heart and mind. What is the very heart of the risen Lord to say, you know the Bible? It's about me. It's not about you. It's about me. And when we see this, the Bible comes to life for us. No matter what Bible story you're reading, it relates to Christ. Some passages, they only whisper his name. Other passages shout his name. But make no mistake, it's all about Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, just as I opened up our time here praying that you would help the scriptures come alive to us, that the genres, the themes, the types, the persons, that they would all in various ways remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, who calls us to live in light of that good news. Lord, would it all land on our hearts this morning as what it is meant to be, grace, good news, and our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.